Good morning, Grace Church. This morning's scripture reading comes from the, the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 44 through 50. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandments, his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Thanks, Dana. Good morning, everyone. Having explained the nature and cause of the unbelief of many, I was last week, uh, in this final section, thought we might squeak through this week, but in this final section of chapter 12, uh, Jesus came back to the question of what is at stake with unbelief or belief. It seems very likely that he particularly had in mind those from verse 42 who believed in Jesus, but for fear were unwilling to say so publicly. There's nothing entirely new in this passage. That is to say, he's covered already the topics he covers in this, but, but what it does for us is it provides for us a number of healthy reminders concerning three things in particular. Who Jesus is, why we should believe in him, and what is at stake in our response to him. And so with these three things in mind, the big idea that, or those things in mind, the big idea of this passage is that believing in Jesus is good, is right, good, wise, and necessary. Right, good, wise, and necessary. And the main takeaway is to work diligently in the Spirit's power and according to the means of grace God has given us to remember those things at all times. It's easy to forget. We're going to look at that in a minute in order that we might live in light of them at all times. So let me say that again. The big idea of this passage is that believing in Jesus is right, good, wise, and necessary. And the main takeaway is to work diligently to remember these things at all times, in order that we might live in light of them in all ways. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this last section in chapter 12. After having explained the unbelief of those who saw his miracles and heard his teaching and stood in his presence, we're thankful that Jesus comes back now to explain why we ought to believe. Things that he's already said, things that he's already taught emphatically, and in some cases even more thoroughly, we're thankful for that. We're thankful for these good reasons why we ought to believe. And so I pray for Those this morning who do not yet believe, who are here because their parents made them come, or who are here because their spouse believes, or not sure why they're here. I pray that for those who do not yet believe, that they would hear these words of the Lord, these these words of our Lord, and believe. 
And for those of us who do already believe, I pray that we would echo the words of the centurion. We believe, help our unbelief. There are still pockets within us where we fail to believe your promises as we ought. And so may today be a day, even for those of us who are Christians, to believe in greater ways and for greater reasons and to have greater confidence in the belief that we do have and to live more fully in light of the things we do believe. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's an interesting question. At first, I I thought about this and I thought, I don't know, here's the question. Have you ever felt so strongly about something that you yelled about it in a crowd? Seems like the answer should be yes, more than I think it actually is. As far as I can remember, I've only, I don't think I've ever done it. I've said things to crowds, of course. I, I do every Sunday and I care a lot about what I say. But but to be so overwhelmed that in a crowd of strangers that didn't expect to be yelled at or cried out to, I don't think I've ever done that. As far as I can remember, I've only experienced it once. Many of you know this, but I was on a plane one time heading back from a TLI trip. When we were waiting to de- depart another country, some part of the plane engine, which I never figured out what it was, caught on fire. I was awake. I was sleeping already, and I was awakened from my sleep to the flight attendant yelling out, evacuate, evacuate, evacuate. That was... That was an interesting experience. Our page or our passage opens with the words, and Jesus cried out. As with my experience on the plane, there are two key aspects to this. It indicates both an urgency and a public nature of what Jesus was about to say. In this sense, in the way that Jesus means it here, and in the way he's used it elsewhere, in the way he's done it elsewhere in John's Gospel, you don't cry out concerning inconsequential matters, and you don't do so in private. Jesus' words were more eschatologically urgent than immediately urgent, but eschatological urgency is always the most important kind of urgency. So along with Jesus' original hearers, we need to listen carefully, Grace Church. When Jesus cries out, our ears should perk up. In the way of context, this is the fourth time that Jesus has cried out in this fashion. Each and each of them were uh, similarly urgent and public. In chapter 7 at the Feast of Booths, Jesus cried out concerning his heavenly origin in response to the unbelief and even animosity of those who were present. In that same chapter, on the great day of that same feast, Jesus cried out, offering himself to his hearers as living water. In chapter 11, Jesus cried out for Lazarus to come out of the tomb, having raised him from the dead. Jesus' message in these verses, 44 to 50, this message was one he wanted as many possible, as many people as possible to hear because of the eternal urgency of what was at stake. So listen up, Grace. But I want to say one more thing. I've said this a few times, but I want to unpack this. Before we get to the text itself, before we get to the content of Jesus' cry, the fact that he cried out is meant to perk up our ears, but also the fact that, as I said at the beginning, he said everything that he's about to say already in John's Gospel, that too is meant to perk up our ears. The fact that in our passage, Jesus publicly cried out concerning urgent things that he'd spoken of before, sometimes several times before, serves as another important reminder of a theme 
that we see all over the Bible. Okay, what's that theme? There's, there's two things. Jesus' word, Jesus, or the John's words, and Jesus cried out. And secondly, a theme I'm about to give you, both of those things mean you should tune in this morning. Here's the theme. The necessity of remembering the things that God has said and done. It is one thing to gain understanding, to come here, to hear the sermon preached, or sit in Berea and learn about death in the intermediate state, which is what we did this morning, to read your Bible and to get something that maybe you hadn't gotten before from the text. It's one thing to learn it. That's a gift from God. It's another thing to remember it as you go through life. That's a different thing altogether. For that reason, and I think you probably know this, and if you don't, you're about to, the Bible is filled with commands for God's people to remember. I want to rattle some off. Deuteronomy 8.18, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. Deuteronomy 16.12, you, rem- you shall remember, it's a command, that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe the statutes that I give. Nehemiah 4.14, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. That's a good one. Psalm 105.4, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Why would you do that? Why, why, or what does he give that we might do that? Seek him continually. Here it is. Remember, remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. Isaiah 44, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I am redeemed you. Remember these things. Isaiah 46, remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. One more. Malachi 4.4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Get this? There's more. This is just a few of them. Remember. Well, if that were not enough, God's repeated commands to his people to remember, were he added to those prohibitions from forgetting. So not only are you commanded to remember, you're prohibited from Forgetting, just two. Deuteronomy 9.7. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord, your God, to wrath in the wilderness. Proverbs 4.5. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget. And do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Well, there's more still. I hope this is helpful. Further still, because there is this is such an important idea to remember and not forget. And because God knows that we as a people in our sin are exceptionally prone to neglect these things. Not only are many are there many commands to remember and prohibitions against forgetting, but God's word also consistently speaks of the dangers of what happens if we do. Judges 8.33, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. Psalm 78, 
They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. One more. Amos 1, 9. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenants of brotherhood. What is the source of their sin? It was, God says they did not remember. Grace, as you know, God is God. When he speaks, we must listen, understand, and obey. It is not necessary for God to repeat himself or explain himself, much less give repeated warnings and second chances. Oftentimes, kids, you know this. Your parents will tell you to do something, go clean your room, and in the midst of heading in that direction, something else distracts you, and you forget. And your parents say, hey, did you clean Did you clean your room? And you say, oh, no, I forgot, as if forgetting excuses you from obeying what they said. But what this teaches us is that the forgetting is a second sin, not an excuse for neglecting the first. Does that make sense? You with me, kids? You with me, parents of kids? Forgetting the commands of the Lord is a second sin, not an excuse from the first. That's a big deal. And so, again, when he speaks, we must listen and obey. He is not under any obligation. He does not owe us second chances or repetition or warnings. For that reason, we must recognize that repeated commands and prohibitions and warnings like what we have in our passage for this morning, are expressions of the grace of God. So, what's more? One last layer to this idea of, you must remember, you shall not forget. There is a lot at stake in whether or not you do, and there's one more piece to this puzzle. Because our God is a God of extravagant grace, knowing that sin makes it such that remembering is hard and forgetting is easy, God gives more grace to his people still, besides second chances and warnings, repetition. He gives things to us, to his people, to help us remember. Not only does he keep telling us, but he gives us things to help us remember as well. For instance, if you remember, Jesus is in Jerusalem saying the things he's saying at Passover. Well, maybe you remember from the first time we talked about that, but Passover was a gift to the people of God, to remember the glory and kindness and grace of God, to help them, to help serve as a perpetual reminder of his rescue of them from slavery in Egypt and the mighty power that he displayed in doing so. Grace, for us, he is given communion to help us remember what Jesus did and remember that he will return. He gave rainbows to help us remember the wages of sin and his everlasting promise to be merciful. He even gave one of my favorites, tassels. We don't do enough tassels around here, I think. He gave tassels to his people to help remind them to obey his commands. Just listen to Numbers. God loves us. He loves his people. Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corner of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember the commandments of the Lord to do them, to not follow after your heart and your own eyes 
which you are inclined to horror after. What a gift. It's tassels. So, all right. I want to see more tassels next week, probably. All right. So with all of those things, we come now to the familiar teaching that Jesus cried out. As we do, I hope to have made it clear that when we find God's word repeating itself, rather than skimming over it or tuning it out, as we might be prone to do, we ought to lean further in. And the knowledge that we found something here, the fact that God limited himself to the words that he limited himself to, the fact that he used some of it to say the same things again, means they're important. We found a gracious warning to remember something important, something we're probably exceptionally prone to forget. So with that, let's consider the content of Jesus' cry. If I, if a friend were to come up to you and ask you, I want you to try to picture this. Maybe it's your neighbor. Hey, I hear you go to church. I hear you're one of those Christian types. He came up to you or maybe kids, some activity you're a part of. Maybe you, you had to skip something because you were going to be at church on Sunday and a friend asked you, I understand you believe in Jesus. Why, why should I believe in Jesus? What would you tell them? Someone came up to you and asked you, why should I believe in Jesus? What would you tell them? I came to faith in Christ at a time when the main answer was because he'll make your whole life better. That's just sort of how, it's just what everyone said. Come to Jesus and your whole life will get better. Or at the very least, it will function as a get out of hell free card. Today, it seems more likely to hear someone say that you should believe in Jesus, even if it's not true necessarily, or if it's only true in some strange spiritual way, because it'll help you feel a sense of purpose or meaning in your life. That seems to be sort of the vibe out there today. There's some measure of truth to those answers. Fundamentally, they have important flaws. But it's always safer in answering these kinds of questions to go with Jesus' own words. With that, let's consider again the repeated teaching of our Lord concerning four things, the rightness, the goodness, the wisdom, and the necessity of believing in him. Ultimately, Jesus is answering in this passage why we ought to believe in him. Let me just say something about the structure of the sermon. If you have the outline in front of you, you don't, you can get one from the back. If you do, you'll see that there's four reasons Jesus gives, and the first one has five subheadings. So hang on, it sounds like there's nine, but there's really only four. Uh, and the first one just has five subheadings under it. It's a, it's a little bit longer. All right. The first and main reason Jesus gave to the question of why those who hear him should believe in him was because he is one with the Father. Believing in Jesus is right in the same way that believing in the Father is right. And so today, that might not get us very far. In our culture, the same people who reject Jesus or don't believe in Jesus almost certainly would also reject the Father. But in Jesus' day, it was different. The Jews who heard Jesus cry out would have entirely acknowledged God as God. And his right to command is supreme. Their question and their struggle, the people Jesus was originally crying out to, was in deciding whether or not Jesus was right with God as he claimed. Was Jesus' relationship with the Father what Jesus claimed it was? If they could have been sure that Jesus was from the Father, they would have believed in him for sure. Probably. He killed the prophets. 
for that reason, Jesus described his oneness with the Father in five ways. So four main headings. It's it's right, it's good, it's wise, and it's necessary. This first one is that it is right because he is one with the Father. And Jesus explains five ways that he is one with the Father. The first one is this. He informed the crowd that believing in him was believing in the Father. We see that especially in verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. To the skeptical in the crowds, then and now, as well as the faithful. To those who were near enough to Jesus to hear him, as well as all who read this gospel. Jesus made clear that there is no distinction between believing in him and believing in his father. In that way, it makes no sense to claim to believe in the Father, Jesus said, and not believe in his Son. This, of course, blows out of the water the possibility of Jesus being merely a prophet or wise teacher of some sort, or even the greatest prophet or wisest teacher. Jesus will explain this more fully, what this means, but for now, hear his words and hear them clearly. Why should you believe in Jesus? Because whoever believes in him believes not in him, but in the Father who sent him. And in this, along with the rest of the sermon, we have a reminder, Grace, of the importance of the triune nature of God. We will either believe in God as Father, Son, and Spirit, or we do not believe in God. All manner of atheism, cultism, and misproportioned Christian theism come from minimizing, overemphasizing, or denying one of the persons or functions of the Godhead. With God's help, let us stand firm on the Trinitarian nature of God, and give each person their proper place, their affection, worship. Indeed, the unique and infinite glory of God is triune in nature. That's one significant reason why we believe in Jesus. Second, Jesus informed the crowd that believing in him was right because he was sent by the Father. Not only was he one with the Father, but he was sent by the Father, and that's in the last half of verse 44. He was there as an emissary for God. He was not there on his own accord or of his own will or for his own purposes, but according to the will and for the mission given to him by his Father. Believing in Jesus is right because he is one with the Father, and his oneness with the Father is seen in the fact that he was crying out to the crowd because he had been sent by God to do so. Third, Jesus informed the crowds, that to see him was to see the Father, in verse 45. Jesus will repeat this idea again in chapter 14. It seems to be clearly what Paul had in mind when he wrote Colossians 1.5. He is the image of the invisible God. To look upon Jesus is to see the essence of God incarnate. Of course it is right to believe in Jesus, because he is one with the Father and therefore perfectly bears the image of God. Fourth, Jesus spoke only on the Father's authority. The fourth aspect of Jesus' relationship with the Father that testified to his oneness with the Father and demonstrated the rightness of believing in him that he cried out concerning was the simple fact that everything he said, he said on the Father's authority. He never spoke on his authority alone. Kids, have you ever tried to tell your younger brother or sister what to do? You ever tried that? If so, how do they normally respond? I'm sure most of your brothers and sisters are exceedingly holy. 
Do they usually jump to obey because you told them to? In my case, my sister really didn't like that. There's reasons beyond just, I contributed to this. I'll tell you one in a little bit. My sister really didn't like it when I bossed bossed her around, and especially she didn't like it when she suspected that my motives for doing so were selfish. She was playing the Nintendo. You guys know what that is, right? (laughs) The first one, 1986-ish. Told her to get off because my friends and I wanted to play it. That really frustrated her. It's different, though, if you tell your brother or sister what to do because your parents told you to tell them that. In that case, you're not speaking on your own authority, which you probably don't have a lot of, but on that of your mom and dad, who do have authority from God over them. Your siblings still might not like the message that you bring, but at least they're likely to recognize your right to say it when it comes from your parents. Jesus always spoke on the authority of God. That's a good reason to believe in him. Fifth, lastly, under the first heading, Jesus spoke only the words given to him by the Father. It's similar, but it's also different. Believing in Jesus is right because he is one with the Father. And in this short passage, again, it's where we've been. His oneness shows up in the facts that to believe in him is to believe in God. Shows up in the fact that he was sent by God. It shows up in the fact that he was the image of God. It shows up in the fact that he spoke only on the authority of God, and finally, in the fact that he spoke only the words given to him by God. We see that in 49, and then again at the end of 50. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but by the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And then at the end of 50, what I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And so I'm gonna, this is a little bit confession. I wasn't a Christian at this time, but... Uh, Often, when I spoke to my sister on my parents' behalf, I would add to what they would say to get something I wanted from my sister or sometimes just to mess with her. I would go on the authority of my mom or dad, but sometimes I wielded that authority for purposes other than theirs. Back to the Nintendo story. My parents would send me to tell my sister, hey, wrap up. So they were kind. You know, no no kid likes to be told, stop playing the Nintendo now. And so my parents would be kind and send me to tell my sister, 10 minutes and then it's dinner time. So in a form of truth, I would go to my sister and tell her, you need to stop playing the Nintendo because we're going to have dinner. Tell her she needs to stop now so that I could play for the 10 minutes while she was washing her hands. Jesus never did that. Jesus was not like me as a young teenager. He spoke only on the Father's authority and only what the Father gave him to say. He never freelanced or embellished or mishandled the authority or message entrusted to him. When we couple that with the fact that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good, such that Jesus only spoke those things from the knowledge and power and goodness of God, we can see in this first heading why it is right to believe in Jesus. Because he is one with God and all the things he tells us that meant. Here's the second thing. Remember, there's four. It's right. Secondly, it's good. Believing in Jesus is good since he is light and reveals the pathway out of darkness. When I was in college, my roommates roommates and I went spelunking, which is also coincidentally the first time I ever heard the term spelunking, in a system of caves just outside of Bloomington, Indiana. 
Now, maybe some of you have been in caves and, you know, there's a lot of different tour things where you can kind of ride down or walk down and it's lit and all that. This wasn't that. It was a very, the whole thing was pretty odd, to be honest. So you, you would walk and it would look like a normal, like normal woods. You're just walking around and it just seems like you're walking in the forest. There's no evidence there's a cave system here, much less the miles and miles and miles of caves that were there. And all of a sudden, there's this little rocky area that looks like a normal rocky area in the middle of the woods. And the guy that was kind of leading us on this is just another friend. He said, there it is. I'm thinking, there what is? I'm, I'm picturing some big cliff thing. I, I don't know. Anyway, it was this hole in the ground, and you went into it, and then you went. And it was miles and miles and miles. No... No, like, it just was a hole in the ground that went on for a long, there's no, like, guardrails or check-in point or anything like that. There was this old book that you're supposed to sign your name into, which, like, (laughs) anyway, this was not a sanctioned space, but you were allowed to go in it at the same time. Anyway, we went down in there. It was unlike anything I I had ever experienced before, and frankly, since, I, I don't intend to do that again. It's hard to explain the sensation of being in such a unguarded, there's no button to push to get somebody to come and get you. There's no, nobody even knows you're there really other than the people you chose to tell who, in my case, were not in Bloomington, Indiana, so wasn't going to help anything. It's hard to experience the sensation of being so far under the earth, but what really stood out to me, and the guy again, what, one of, the, one of my buddies that took us had been there before, so he knew this, and he was telling us different things, which apparently I was entirely not listening to. But he talked about the the, the darkness of the dark, and I remember thinking, "What are you talking? You know, dark is dark. It's not. <laughs> There's a different kind of darkness when you're about a mile in, a couple hours of walking and crawling and wiggling, and and so at one point he had us all turn off our flashlights. And I, I remember him telling us, like, bring extra batteries and extra flashlights. And I just had no concept for why he was telling us this stuff. So I bought this cheap little red, you've probably seen it, uh, the, the cheap ones. They're really inexpensive. I bought two of those thinking this is, well, anyway, he told us to turn our flashlights out. And I remember thinking, holy Toledo, if, I mean, I, I've got, like, my whole life is in a buck fifty in my hand here because if this thing goes out, I mean, we had several between us, but if this goes out, there is no chance in the world. I'm even, I'm not getting anywhere. You couldn't see anything. It was a, it was a different kind of darkness for sure. What I didn't realize then is that that's what all of life is like in a far more profound sense. It is good to believe in Jesus because he is the true light of the world and reveals the path out of darkness. That is ignorance and folly and death. The vulnerability I felt in that cave down in Bloomington in the way of physical darkness, if you read your Bibles rightly, you know that it absolutely pales in comparison to the spiritual darkness we are all born into. That's what Jesus had in mind in verse 46. I have come into the world so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. I have no doubt that we would have died apart from these flashlights that we brought in us as far in as we had gotten to guide us out of the caves. But again, Grace, hear this. I think this illustration is helpful. Far more serious still is the fact that we are all born into complete and total spiritual darkness on account on account of the sin we're born into. With no way to come to the light on our own, 
And worse yet, unlike the darkness that we were in when we shut our flashlights off, we're born not even knowing we're in the darkness. Jesus came to be the light that leads us out of spiritual darkness and death and into light and life. So believe in him. Third, believing in Jesus is wise. It's right, it's good, and it's wise, since by it and it alone will we escape judgment. 47 and 48 speak to this. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. You remember, you may remember from our, our time in chapter three that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. You remember that? He came instead because the world had already been condemned. In the same way, Jesus did not come to judge the world since the world stood in judgment and would be judged yet again. Jesus came to rescue the world from the judgment that would come. Grace, let us all settle on the fact this is a big deal. I hear this all the time in different forms. This is a big deal. Let us all settle on the fact that no one is condemned or judged and no one will go to hell because they reject Jesus. Remember that. No one will go to hell because they reject Jesus or because they never heard of Jesus. We are condemned, judged, and hell-bound because we are born into and choose sin and that the wages of sin is death. Not believing in Jesus is not the source of our problems. It is the symptom of our problems. In 47 and 48, Jesus taught that failing to believe, to delight in, and to obey his words is evidence that will be used against the unrepentant on Judgment Day for the crime of treason against God. As Jesus said here, believing in him is the way of rescue that God provided, not the ultimate source of our judgment. You with me, Grace? We don't go to hell because we don't believe in Jesus or because we've never even heard of him. We go to hell because we sin against God. And our unbelief in Jesus is a symptom of that. And so as a quick pastoral plea here, hear Jesus' words and keep them, Grace. Read your Bibles consistently. Pray through what you read, seeking the Spirit's help, as we just sang earlier before the sermon, seeking the Spirit's help to understand and obey. Share what you learn, what you've prayed over, what the Lord reveals to you with one another. Keep the words of Jesus by memorizing them, treasuring them, living in light of them. Jesus spoke here primarily concerning those who do not hear or keep his words, but embedded in that is a call to do otherwise. Let us heed that call. Hear the words of Jesus. Believe them and keep them. Here's the last one. Believing in Jesus is necessary. It's right, it's good, it's wise, and it's necessary, since his obedience to the Father's command is eternal life. Look at the beginning of verse 50. And I know that his command, his commandment, is eternal life. You just saw in verse 49, I just read it to you, for I have spoken not of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. Tells us what that is. The commandment was to speak and say these things. What to say and what to speak. Father commanded him to say and speak certain things. The things that he said and spoke and did and was, his obedience to those things is eternal life. In those few words of Jesus, we've, we're given a summary of everything we've seen so far. Jesus is, Grace Church, eternally one in essence with the Godhead, with the Father. At the proper time, he came to earth according to the will of God. 
He spoke and worked not on his own authority, but on God's. The things he said, when he said them, how he said them, and to whom he said them were all straight and only from God, he tells us. And Jesus' obedience to all of those things, Jesus' perfect obedience to the command of God, was the means by which God granted eternal life to those who would believe. Our obedience, our disobedience to the Father's command is unto our own death. Our disobedience to the Father's command is unto our own death. Therefore, believing in Jesus is necessary, since Jesus' perfect obedience to the Father's command, even unto his own death, is eternal life for all who believe. How awesome are these things, Grace? At the same time, I hope the reality of disbelief is also increasingly obvious to you. Because belief in Jesus is right on account of his oneness with God, disbelief is wrong, for it is a rejection of the one who made you. Because belief in Jesus is good on account of the fact that he is light, disbelief is bad because it leaves us in darkness. Because belief in Jesus is wise on account of the fact that by it we escape judgment, disbelief is folly, for by it we remain condemned. And because belief in Jesus is necessary, for through it alone do we gain eternal life, disbelief is a possibility only because we are spiritually dead and blind. For all these reasons, Grace, I cry out to you, believe in Jesus today and be saved. In conclusion, you may remember from my introduction many months ago now, that John's gospel is divided fairly neatly into two parts. Into what theologians call the book of signs, maybe you remember that, and secondly, the book of glory. As you can probably imagine, the book of signs is called the book of signs because it contains signs. Many miraculous signs of Jesus demonstrating that he is from God, and in a similarly transparent manner. The book of glory is so-called because in it, Jesus' glory is most fully revealed at the cross and at the empty tomb. We've now come to the end of the book of signs, which means we're about to enter into the book of glory. Let's give ourselves, therefore, this week, spend some time this week, in addition to remembering what you've forgotten. Let's give ourselves this week to asking the Spirit to prepare our hearts and minds to behold the kind of glory that no one was expecting to behold the kind of glory that we are about to encounter.